0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Over the next several decades, as human populations grow and developing countries become more affluent, the demand for energy will soar. Parts of the energy sector are preparing to meet this demand by increasing renewable energy production, which is necessary to combat climate change. But many renewable energy sources have a large energy sprawl. That's the amount of land needed to produce energy which can threaten biodiversity and conservation. Is it possible to meet this rise in energy demand while still conserving natural places and species? That's the subject of a new book called Energy Sprawl Solutions. And uh, one of the co-authors is uh, Joseph Kieseker, who is lead scientist for the Nature Conservancy's Conservation Lands Team. In this capacity, his main responsibilities include developing new tools, methods, and techniques that improve conservation. And he pioneered the Conservancy's Development by Design strategy to improve impact mitigation through incorporation of predictive modeling to provide solutions that uh, benefits conservation goals and development. He also conducts his own research in areas ranging from disease ecology to the effectiveness of new conservation tools such as conservation easements. Uh, Joseph Kiesker, uh, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, good morning, Tom. Uh, It's great to be here. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you uh, so much. Uh, should mention that Joseph Kiesker will give uh, a Stegner Center Green Bag Series lecture uh, that's happening today in the noon hour. 12.15 is the start for that, and that's happening at uh, S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom on the campus of U- U- uh, University of Utah. It's a level six in the building. 12.15 today. Uh, that will be streamed and recorded on the S.J. Quinney College of Law YouTube channel. So, you're able to be there in person. That'd be great. Uh, but if not, you're able to view that on on YouTube. Uh, Professor Keesker, uh, understand you've been in you've been at Penn State, University of Wyoming, now based at Fort Collins. Is it?
1: That's right. Yep. Oh um, where I work for the Nature Conservancy. Yes. Um, and I'm yep lead scientist and lead our work on on trying to strike a balance between uh, achieving our conservation goals and and the future of development.
0: You've done, uh, you've done studies in Mongolia. I want to talk about that a little later. I think uh, South America, uh, very interesting. I do want to, as we go along, talk about conservation easements. I think uh, a lot of us are curious about that. You've done some work on that. Uh, I want to quote from the book here. By 2050, global energy consumption is expected to grow by over 65%, and global electricity demand is projected to nearly double. You go on to say this is uh, probably inevitable, and I think sometimes we forget this is very hugely beneficial to a large swath of the world.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, it's right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm i a, a big, big fan of energy. You know, I, I like the fact that I can um, turn the lights on in my house, um, that I can use my computer, uh, I can stay warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And I think, you know, uh, the, the developing countries of the world see the lifestyle that we have in the U.S. and other developed countries, and and they want that those comforts as well. Um, and you know, I think we've all lived fuller and longer lives because of largely because of our our use of energy. I
0: wonder if you could expand that. It, uh, elsewhere in the book, you you kind of lay that out that uh, this really is a revolution in our times. It's really expanded uh well, everything from food production to transportation to um, you know to all the technology that we have
1: yeah, um, you know even just in the last fifty years, uh, from I think as you said, from the our, our ability to, to to grow and and move food quickly around the world um, to our ability to move ourselves from, uh, you know, point A to point B, you know, it's, it's, it's not difficult to within uh, less than a day's time to be on the other side of the planet. Uh, our ability to do what we're doing right now, I'm on my cell phone talking to you, and you know, this morning I was on the Internet. All these things at the core are driven by our use of energy and our uh, expanding use of energy.
0: So uh, tremendous benefits, we, we wouldn't want it, we wouldn't give it up, right? We wouldn't do it out without it. And we we can't really begrudge developing nations from uh, wanting, uh, you know, these benefits. Uh, but the side that's usually uh, emphasized, maybe we could emphasize this uh, here, uh, large costs, very large costs.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I, you know, so I work in a lot of developing countries, and— as a as a representative of a conservation organization, it's you know it's it's really challenging to find the right balance between working to conserve their natural resources and helping them develop at the same time. You know, I'm very I, it's very uncomfortable for me to be able to come down, go to India, one of the countries I work in, and say, you know, you guys shouldn't develop your natural resources because um, you know it's going to have an impact on biodiversity. When they look at the U.S., which we've converted huge swaths of our country, largely to our benefit, for energy production, for food production, and, and, and to then ask them to not do the same. So what our, at the core of what our work is, is to try to find that, that balance between how can you develop, but at the same time maintain those natural resource values.
0: Uh, of course, a part of this, increasingly, we think and hope, right, will be renewable Uh, energy. Um, Part of this book that I hadn't been aware of, you talk about the energy sprawl. So to combat climate change, um, we're we're going to need to go to renewables, but there are some cost-benefit trade-offs with renewables.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that's at the core of what we're trying to bring forward in the book. Um, You know, I think our our energy footprint's going to grow regardless of the mix of energy that we use. If we stick with sort of our Current business as usual, which is largely fossil fuel-dominated, um, oil and gas, coal. We're still going to our, our, our energy footprint will continue to grow. But the challenge with with energy sprawl and the footprint from energy gets bigger when we we try to shift towards lower carbon-intensive energy sources like wind and solar and hydropower. Um, because the reality is those footprints are just they're they're much 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 bigger um, I think the way to, to sort of wrap your head around it is fossil fuels are, are are capturing a concentrated form of the Sun's energy in you know in, in what is essentially um, biomass that's been compressed for eons and w- the renewable energy sources are, are capturing the Sun's power essentially over one one day one one
0: Day's time period. I want to uh, go immediately to an email, and by the way, you, you can join this conversation, hope that you will. Very interesting and important conversation here with Joseph uh, Kieseker. Uh, the email is upraccess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And uh, this is uh, Tom Elder. He says he's uh, talking about uh, building renewable energy facilities in areas already impacted by industry, hopefully using areas that uh, served fossil fuels, like using strip mines and decommissioned coal power plants. For example, the Bonanza Power Plant uh, out near Vernal in eastern Utah is uh, currently fueled by a coal mine that will inevitably run out of coal. If the large footprint of that plant were converted to a solar power plant, the infrastructure to feed the electricity into the grid already exists. Of course, there would be some energy loss in transmission, but the same losses occur with the present coal-fired plant. I wonder what you think about that idea, Joseph Keatsker.
1: Oh, that, that's fantastic, and and again, also core of one of the ideas that we're bringing forward with the energy small solutions. Um, we already have, you know, we've already done a really good job, unfortunately, of transforming a, a big chunk of the planet, especially in the United States. And so, a lot of those areas that are already converted, um, agricultural fields, mines, um, serve as is tremendous opportunities for us to develop renewable energy, and and there's a lot of co-benefits that, that go along with that. Um, often, those places that we've converted are reasonably close to where we already are and where we're going to use energy. And so that, in some ways, can help reduce transmission costs. Probably the best place that we that we have that largely goes unexploited are rooftops. Um, I had a conversation with someone yesterday, and they noted that, you know, everywhere every time they fly into a city, you, you, you end up going over all the all these buildings, and you look at a lot of these flat roofs, in particularly industrial areas, that none of them have uh, solar panels on them. You know, in a state like Utah, which has really good um, solar resources, all of those should be covered in solar panels. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're going to not create any conflicts over land use, obviously. And they're going to reduce transmission costs because they're going to be right where people are using that energy.
0: Hmm. Uh, so, uh, how much of the mix of the solution is this this idea put forward by Tom um, the, you know replace that areas that we've already uh, used for for energy, just replace those those areas with uh, with renewables?
1: Um, I think it's the you know it's the lion's share of the solution. Uh, we just completed a global assessment where we looked at the commitments the countries made under the Paris um, Climate Agreement. And in, in countries all made emission reduction targets. So they, some of them very clear about um, how many gigatons of carbon they were going to reduce from their emissions. Um, some of them a little bit more complicated about, you know, uh, pushing it back to 1990 emission levels and, and some even more complicated than that. Um, but what we were able to do was translate those emission reduction goals into actionable renewable energy targets by looking at how the countries are currently generating electricity and and then asking, well, if they're using mostly fossil fuels, could we shunt that to renewables? We then asked, um, how, how much space is available within those countries on these kinds of places like mines and rooftops and lands that are already converted to, to, to meet those goals. What we found is that globally, we have about 19 times the amount of land that's already converted or rooftops um, or degraded areas that um, can, can, can meet that target, that need. So I think it's a big chunk. The the big part of this is going to be getting people to recognize that if we don't do it that way, there are going to be consequences. There are going to be impacts to biodiversity, more carbon loss, and and a variety of other um, unintended consequences.
0: Well, let's talk about that, Um, and I want to refer to a graphic uh, in the book. This lays it out pretty uh, starkly. Uh, So uh, on one side, land use intensity uh, in, in circles, ranging from large circle, biofuels, very very largest land use intensity, down to the least land use intensive, which is coal. On the other side, CO2 emissions, and it's, it's sort of reversed, of course. Um, so starting at the bottom, uh, coal, not a whole lot of land, natural gas, not much solar, doesn't take out that much, petroleum, larger, hydropower, larger, wind, uh, larger. Um, so as you go up... It was some of these um, uh, renewable energy sources looks like it does take more land than some of the, the sources that they would be pl- replacing.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, there's not a perfect inverse relationship, but a, but a a pretty strong one between the CO2 emissions and, and land use. So things that tend to have small footprints tend to emit a lot of CO2, um, and things that have are good on the CO2 side, like wind and solar, tend to have bigger bigger footprints.
0: Uh, so, so di- yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I guess the only thing I would add is um, our flexibility in terms of firing on those low-impact, uh, low-CO2-impact energy sources is much, much greater than it is for some of those CO2-intensive energy sources. So, coal and oil and gas we have to we have to develop those resources where those deposits are with wind and solar we have so much flexibility because the breadth of the resource is so wide that we can we have so many different ways to achieve those goals so that's one of the big differences.
0: Um, I want to read this uh, statement from the book. Without careful planning, we could trade one crisis, climate change for another, land use challenge and conflict, loss of biodiversity. Uh, and that's what we've been talking about here. So, And you've referenced this, careful planning. Uh, let's take a break. I want to come back and talk about that because you say we'd have solutions. And a whole section of the book is case studies from around the world of uh, some things that have worked or could work. Um but you um, you outline, I'll, I'll read this in full when we come back, but you outline how things usually happen. A private company quietly goes about uh, you know buying some land and and uh, and going uh, about its work of, uh, of producing energy. and uh, then only then uh, you know, starts complying with the regulations. It's all piecemeal. You're saying with some planning, uh, and this is what we're talking about, I believe, aren't we, with uh, development by design. So uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. We're talking with uh, Joseph Kieseker. Uh He is with the Nature Conservancy's cons- Conservation Lands Team, and he's giving a talk uh, today in the noon hour, 1215, at the University of Utah. That's uh, for the Stegner Center. And uh, that is uh, at the S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom, Level 6 on the University of Utah campus. If you're not able to uh, make it, the event will be streamed and recorded at the S.J. Quinney College of Law YouTube channel. More following this break. The world's top genetic researchers have spent the week pondering what's next now that one scientist in China claims to have produced genetically altered babies.
1: I think the desire to have a healthy child is going to drive the use of this. But the appropriate use is for preventing disease.
0: I'm Mary Louise Kelly, the ethics of human gene editing this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith-Needham. I'm Jessica Nani, the social media and web management intern here at Utah Public Radio. While I don't do much reporting on the air, I have the pleasure of interacting with you, our listeners, on the web to help bring stories to you from beyond the air. Check us out on UPR.org, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on our app for news updates, community event information, award-winning feature series, and much more. If you have any content requests, we'd love to hear them using the hashtag IAMUPR. And as always, thanks for listening. Finnish composer Eino-Johanni Rautavara was 28 when he wrote his Symphony No. 1 in 1956. It's a fascinating, gorgeous piece simply not played often enough. Coming up, we'll hear the Buffalo Philharmonic in concert playing the first symphony by Rao Tavara on the next performance today from 8 p.m. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Joseph Kiesger. He is a co author of a book, Energy Sprawl Solutions. The subtitle is Balancing Global Development. And conservation. He says over the next sev- uh, several decades, human population grows and hu- uh, developing countries become or- more affluent. The demand for energy will soar. And, of course, we have renewable energy production, which is necessary to combat climate change. But many renewable energy sources have a large energy sprawl. That's the amount of land needed to produce energy, which can threaten biodiversity and conservation. The question is, is it possible to meet this rise in energy demand while still conserving natural places and species? Very important question. And he'll be talking about this at a Stegner Center Green Bag Series lecture. That's happening in the noon hour, 12.15 today at University of Utah. That'll be at the S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom, level six in the building there on the University of Utah campus. The event will be streamed and recorded on the S.J. Quinney College of Law YouTube uh, channel. Uh, so, uh, Professor Kieseker, I want to uh, read this. Uh, and I think we all nod our heads this is how things happen now. You say, without a better approach to energy planning, the story will remain the same. A company quietly acquires land rights, plans its individual project, and afterward complies with biodiversity laws and statutes in a piecemeal fashion. The ensuing lawsuits slow development, deplete conservation and energy resources that can be put to better use and most times do not safeguard the natural resources valued by society. It's a piecemeal approach, and it's, it's happening all over the world. That's business as usual right now, isn't it?
1: Uh, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, the analogy that I like to use is, um, if you've ever built a house, you would never think of building your house without a blueprint, uh, you know, and, and sort of figure out, oh, I'm going to slap this room up, and then I'll figure out where I'm going to put the bathroom. Um, and, but that's exactly what we're doing with our landscapes. We're building them without a blueprint, and it's not surprising that we have conflicts between environmental issues and development um, uh, objectives.
0: Um, I want to, before we get to, some, I want to get to some examples. You have some hopeful examples, case studies in the book. Um, you and environmental groups may not like hearing you say this, uh, you, you say, even more troublesome, you, you outlined some plans, even more troublesome is the fact that many environmental groups in developed countries still champion the romantic yet unrealistic notion that everything can be saved for conservation.
1: Yep, that's right. Um, you know, I, I think that that's particularly the case in developing countries. You know, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's really inappropriate to come from the United States and and try to tell a developing country that they shouldn't, you know, develop their natural resources, improve the livelihoods of the people in those countries because of the biodiversity values. And so, you know, what we can do, though, is work with them to figure out ways to make that happen that minimizes the impact, that reduces those um, consequences. And I think that's at the core of our work with Development by Design, which is Asking people that live in those places. What is it that they care about the landscape? What do they want to see that landscape look like and in a lot of times that includes the natural values, but it also includes livelihoods and jobs and so then we can develop a modeling framework that allows them to look at the trade-offs to look at how those Goals and objectives can be accomplished in that same space. I
0: want to the uh repeat your call to action here uh, from uh, from the book as well. You issue a call to action for the environmental community to strategically shift away from its hardline opposition of energy development toward proactively guiding the right energy mix into the right uh, places. Uh, what reaction do you get from environmental groups? I could see some in the environmental community saying, well, you're just, you know, you're, you're too far over on industry side. What are you talking about?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think uh, when, when, we, when we do any of this project work in a particular place, we invite all the stakeholders to the table. And, and some groups are willing to participate. They have information. They have opinions. They, they have an idea of how the, what the landscape should look like. Um, and in some cases, you know, I think there are folks that, that don't want don't to wanna take part of that kind of activity. That is about compromise. And it's not about you know it's 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 all it's not an all or nothing outcome and some for some groups it is um, so it can be can be challenging uh,
0: of course uh, in in some areas conservation means and some environmental groups will will take a hard line position because they say they have to when you know when an area a pristine area or or an area that they want to conserve is gone it's gone right um uh, so there are, there are some areas of this that are zero-sum, aren't there?
1: there? There are. And I, and I think I, I, you know, I, don't, I don't blame any of the environmental groups for the positions I take. What, where are the fault lies, in my opinion, is the regulatory process. Um, you know, the U.S. is a great example. The way we plan for development is one by one by one. Um, so if we're uh, looking at oil and gas development, we may, be, we may be permitting those wells uh, a well at a time or five or six or ten wells at a time. We're not thinking about what does the development look like over the next 20 or 30 years and planning for it at that scale and identifying where those impacts from development may intersect with those, those you know, places that we all want to see conserved. And so building a plan for that that's proactive, that, that um, you know, sees where that development is likely to go, that's how we should be planning. And and so, you know, I think one of the reasons why there are environmental groups that take a, you know, it's there's, they oppose every kind of development is because the regulatory process is broken. And that's how they see, you know, we have to oppose every, every development because that's how each of the developments are coming at us, one by one by one
0: hmm uh so I want to talk uh, get into talking about some specific examples of a development uh, by design is there is there anyone that uh, well maybe I could have you talk about Mongolia you've been doing some work in Mongolia the government there uh, seems uh, by your account to be committed to using this holistic approach
1: um they are uh, you know first off Mongolia is an absolutely um, spectacular place uh, of the people are still nomadic herders, so they live in close proximity um, to nature and and are heavily reliant on nature. Um, our, 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 Our program started in Mongolia largely with the recognition that grasslands globally are the least protected, most converted biome on the planet. So we started our work in Mongolia about 10 years ago, and the obvious challenge in Mongolia was was infrastructure development, roads, um, mining and mineral resources, energy development, and so we brought this process of development by design um, to government. We started the very eastern portion of the country, referred to as the Eastern Steppe, um, and worked there with government and other partners. The government invited us then to move and do that work in the Gobi Desert, um, where a lot of development activity is taking place. We partnered with a, a unique blend of, of of folks there. And then the government said, hey, we really love this. They, they paid us to do the rest of the country, sort of central and western portion of the country. Um, and And the you know, I think the, the proof is in the pudding with this one where they're, they're really using it. Um, to date, they've designated about 150,000 square kilometers of new protected areas. It's an area roughly the size of the state of New York. Um, and, you know, to, they started out with a commitment to protect 30% of the country, and they've used this this blueprint as a guide for that. And it's also being used... To help shape where development footprints will go, um, that will reduce impact and how those impacts will be compensated for to help fund that vision for conservation. So a lot, a lot of great work, um, a lot of great partners in Mongolia and, um, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's definitely a, a, a shining example of how this can work.
0: So, government has to be involved, uh, industry, uh, you know, conservation, the environmental community, all working t- together. Um, I guess my question was going to be, can it work? You're saying it's looks like it's working in Mongolia.
1: Yeah, um you know, Mongolia's a special case, I think, for a variety of reasons. One, uh, it's low population density. There's a lot of room to maneuver in terms of being able to figure out how to ach- accomplish the conservation goals and those development goals, which, you know, is not the, the situation and, and the case everywhere around the world um, where, you know, the win-wins may be harder um, to, to find.
0: You've done work in, uh, in, in South America, have you?
1: Yes. Um, we've worked in Colombia and Argentina. Um, the work in Colombia was, was exciting, very similar to Mongolia um, in that you know a strong engagement with the government that ultimately led to uh, a regulatory change in their environmental licensing process um, and and how where development um, can go, but also when there are impacts, how those impacts will be compensated for, so that they will require for any impact to any kind of natural system that there are, there are what are referred to as biodiversity offsets. Um,
0: I wonder, you know, bring it bring it home to the United States, and especially Western United States, and what what we're used to in Utah, for example, is uh, pretty negative headlines in terms of people not working together. Uh, so Representative Bishop and others uh, put forward a public lands initiative, um, which they said... Uh, it sounds like, you know, not referencing your work specifically, but uh, following some of those principles, according to them, turned into controversy over Bears Ears, and that's gone back and forth. And it seems like at the end of that, all the stakeholders are further apart than they, than they were before. I wonder, without wading in necessarily to all the politics of that, uh, what would you say could solutions be applied to that area?
1: Yeah, um, I, yeah, I definitely would like to stay out of the, the political side of things. Um, I think I, I still go back to the regulatory structure and regulatory process. When, when we permit development, we're doing it at the wrong scale, both temporally and spatially. So we're, we're looking at too small a spatial scale, and we're looking at too short a temporal scale. And until that changes, until there's an opportunity to bring people to the table in a way that will allow that sort of meaningful visioning of what the future could look like, where both activities are allowed to, to proceed um, or at least understand where those activities are in conflict, these kinds of issues between environmental groups and, and, and the you know, pro-development side of this are, are going to continue.
0: So how, um, just generally, how does, what does that look like when it's successful? To increase the scale, to bring stakeholders together, to, to, to try to find a common vision? How, how does that, what does that look like when it works?
1: Um, you know, I think we've had, we've had some, uh, again, I would definitely refer to some of the case studies in the book that will, will do a much deeper and richer job than I can in, in, a, in a short amount of time here on the phone. Um, but I, you know, I think it's, I I would, you know, I could point to some of our work in the United States that I, that I, that I think we're proud of, um, uh, planning for wind development in the state of Kansas is a, is a really good, I think, good example. And it's it's referenced in the book, you know, we brought together the, both the, the wind development community, the conservation community. Um, to, to, to the table to say we want to see there's one, one source of development that I think the environmental community can get behind and, and is, is supportive of, of seeing increase its footprint, and that's renewable energy. Um, the Lessons from that type of work where the environmental community comes to the table with the idea that there's going to be development I think can be models um, for... Other types of footprint that maybe are harder um, for for people to um, to want to see on the ground because of their just sort of um, you know innate opposition to different types of development.
0: So you've issued a call for environmental groups to, um, you know, as you said just now, uh, come to the table with the idea that we need development and to shape that development to the best ends. What about the industry side? What are, what are you finding? The the I guess the stereotype is uh, industry is equally hardcore. What, what are their incentives, and are they incentivized going forward to uh, to want to participate in this process as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, there, there's a... They definitely need to take a couple steps, um, you know, towards compromise as well. But with, with development um, companies, in particularly energy companies, what they want, I think, in many cases, is certainty that they're going to be able to make an investment and that investment is going to go forward. And so this, this visioning exercise that we've done in a variety of places um, is uh, in, in many cases to them helpful and useful because they can understand proactively where there's going to be conflict and, and where they're going to um, maybe have less or, or in some cases even no conflict. So I, I think they like that part of it, but you know, at the end of the day, they are, um, you know, they are for-profit companies and the sideboards that they have to work within are the, are the regulatory processes. And so I, again, I go back to that. Um, you know, they're, they're really good at adhering to what, what the regulatory drivers are. And so if we change some of those regulatory drivers, I think they will, they'll play by those rules. And that is you know, requiring um, environmental impact assessment processes to be more uh, larger in scale and, and f- more forward-looking.
0: I uh, want to go to break here soon, and when I come back, I want to uh, treat uh, some specific renewables. Um, I'm, I've got a chapter up right now uh, from the book on uh, solar, and then uh, get to some overall solutions uh, from your book. The, the The book is Energy Sprawl Solutions. We're talking to uh, a co-author of the book, uh, Joseph Kiesiger. Um Before we go to break, I'm curious, when I read in your biography here that uh, – You've studied effectiveness of conservation tools such as conservation easements I'm curious about that I'm, I'm sure members of the audience will be curious about that as well uh, how effective what uh, what are some of the what, what benefits what are some of the drawbacks this is this is a tool that's been used uh, over over some time uh, conservation easements
1: um, yeah uh, you know I think the, the conservation community has a variety of different kinds of tools in its toolbox. Um, and, you know, fee purchase, purchasing land to, to then manage and conserve is one option. Um, formal protection at a state or national level is another. But most of our biodiversity values in the U.S. are on private land. And, you know, and many of those are private working lands. And, and that biodiversity persists with those working activities, ranching, farming. And so conservation easements are a tool that allow conservation organizations to work with landowners to secure those biodiversity values, um, but but maybe um, remove some of the development uh, potential so they can't subdivide it into residential subdivisions, which would be incompatible with those biodiversity goals. So it's a um, incredibly powerful tool to both allow for conservation, but also maintain some of those working
0: values. And of course, as you say, this is private lands uh, where this uh, where this works. Uh, in some areas, uh, some western states, uh, you know, very high percentage of public lands. Uh, but uh, w- at what scale could could this could this work? And I guess in some areas, there's a lot of private land, and um, you can't buy up every last uh, lot in the in a given area, but but uh, how scalable is this, uh, and still be effective? Or uh, I guess another way to ask this is how high a priority? Where would you place this in in the list of tools?
1: Um, it's, a, it's a it's a really really good question, um, and it's a it's a tricky question because I think when when you think about it within the face of what's likely to change into the future um, and and imagine that cities like um salt lake city are going to continue to grow at their edges Um, tools like conservation easements can be incredibly effective but what we have to be careful of is is again i would go back to sort of thinking about the way we think about development by design is thinking about the future um growth patterns and how easements can be used to, as a tool, to sort of steer development away from those conservation resources. Um, Easements, if placed in the wrong places that maybe would prevent development from going there, may steer development to places that have really high conservation value. So just like our development footprints and and thinking about where they're gonna go in the future, we have to think about how we're gonna use conservation easements as a tool. Um, One of the things that we did, one of the first things I did when I started with the Conservancy was a study to look at how effective easements were. And and one of the things that we learned was that we are improving our use of how we're applying them on the ground. We're we're, um, implementing much larger easements, which gets us bigger habitat, and we're thinking about them from a landscape perspective with those ideas in mind, that we're placing them strategically on the ground to make sure that it achieves the conservation visions that we want them to provide for, and that it's also thinking about some of these future waves of development and how easements, if placed in the wrong places, could actually steer development towards um, high conservation value areas. Hmm.
0: By the way, from also from your work, your personal work, I believe you've studied, have you studied amphibians? Did I read that correctly?
1: I have, yeah. Um, uh, a big part of my, my research life um, in academia before, um, before it comes to the Nature Conservancy was, as a disease ecologist, looking at how environmental change triggers outbreaks of disease and how disease contributes to the decline of threatened and endangered species, and um, it wasn't until I got to the Nature Conservancy that I really got into energy issues, but a lot of the modeling that you do around disease spread is spatial in nature. And a lot of the modeling you do to look at uh, future energy patterns and ways to implement conservation inventories is also spatial in nature.
0: Interesting. So, so some applications, field to field.
1: Definitely, yeah. Um, um, and, you know, I, I, I left academia because I was really just tired of writing about <laughs> conservation and really wanted to do it. So I think a lot of the tools that I learned... Um, Again, being largely a disease ecologist helped me um, put them into real-world application, real-world use. We started to address energy issues and, and other conservation issues.
0: Have your views of uh, what the best solutions are changed since you left academia and went uh, and you know uh, tried to center your work in, in in solutions?
1: Um, you know, I I, I we used to take a very big-picture approach to. Um, to research um, a lot of the work we did with, with amphibian declines, global amphibian declines, was looking for a big global vision for how environmental change was was driving what ultimately was some of the disease outbreaks. What I've learned as I've gotten more into conservation is that, you know, the, we, we need to have that global vision in mind, but conservation happens um, at a scale that's much closer uh, to the ground. And so, you know, the, the, the adage, you have to think globally globally but act locally is really true with conservation. Um, it's about bringing these sort of ideas and solutions, but really figuring out how to translate them into actionable, um, uh, uh, you know, implementation strategies on the ground. And that's all about compromise. What do people want to see their their landscape look like, and how do you sort of make that happen on the ground? How do you translate that into a blueprint that works for them?
0: Let's take a break. Uh, We're talking with Joseph Kieseker. He is uh, co-author of a new book, Energy Sprawl Solutions. And uh, he is going to be at University of Utah in the noon hour, 12.15, today to give a Stegner Center Green Bag Series Lecture. That is at the S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom. That's on Level 6 of the building, and the event will be streamed and recorded on the S.J. Quinney College of Law YouTube channel. More following this break. I'm Stephen Dubner. On
1: the next Freakonomics Radio, why, even if you are an award-winning food writer and experienced chef, you probably should not open a restaurant. A restaurant is a harsh mistress. Also, is Scandinavia really the happiest place on earth?
0: I'd have said a six was a good day in London, and now I'm generally on that eight, and sometimes it's a nine if I'm lucky.
1: That's next time on Freakonomics
0: Radio. Coming up today at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's Community Calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the Community Calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. Andrea Martin is a comedy legend, going all the way back to her time on SCTV. She's being honored with a star on Canada's Walk of Fame. And we'll reminisce about the old days for sure, but also talk about where Andrea Martin is going. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Joseph Kieseker. He is a lead scientist for the Nature Conservancy's Conservation Lands Team, and he is a co-author of Energy Sprawl Solutions, and he'll be at the University of Utah giving a lecture 12:15 today, that's at the S.J. Quinney College of Law in the Moot courtroom there, that event will be streamed and recorded on the S.J. Quinney College of Law YouTube channel. And uh, you can join this conversation if you would like to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, we have another about six or seven minutes left in the uh, in the conversation. Before I get to some overall solutions and tools that you highlight in the book, Joseph Kiesger, I'd like to talk specifically about uh, solar energy. You talked a bit about uh, wind, um, solar. Uh, well, let me uh, start with this. Uh, how how big a part of the mix uh, can any of these uh, renewable energies, uh, maybe taking them t- together as a whole, can renewable energy replace fossil fuels? And if so, at what at point?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that the, you know, if, we, if we want to deal with climate change, if we really want to hit the emission reduction goals, um, all we have to do is look at the source of emissions. Um, there's a great graphic, and that I'll that I'll use in my presentation today. I wish I could say it was mine, but it's from WRI. But it it looks at the top. It looks at all you know all the countries in the world, but you really focus in on the top 10 emitters, and you look at their portion of emissions and the sources of those emissions. And energy is the largest chunk of the pie for each of those countries. In those top 10 countries includes the U.S., um, are responsible for about 70 percent of the emissions. And so the, the take home from this is that if we want to address climate change as an issue, um, there's lots of things that we can do, but it, the, the our energy system is at the top of the list. And so renewable energy has to become a bigger portion of um, of the mix. And and there are a myriad of co-benefits that are associated with that. Probably the most important, and I think one of the biggest drivers um, in a lot of developing countries and why they're, I think, going to move more towards renewable energy is just air quality. Um, you know, you don't have the emissions with solar and wind that you do with coal or natural gas.
0: What are the main barriers these days, or out into the, the fairly near future, to adoption or more rapid adoption of uh, alternative energy sources.
1: Yeah, um, well, there are lots. Um, I, you know, there was a great um, Department of Energy study that came out a few years ago, particularly focused on solar, that looked at the the, the you know a uh, project's life cycle and the money that was spent on you know developing it from from you know beginning to when the panels are in the ground generating electrons about 50% of those costs were what they refer to as soft costs. And so they were all the things that they were dealing with with permitting um, you know, not all environmental, but with probably a portion of that. Um, so there's all these you know, uh, <laughs> regulatory barriers in some cases that, that, we've, that we've put up that make it more challenging to make that, um, that transition happen more quickly. And the solar work, I think, in the Western U.S. has provided a really great example of how to help break down some of those barriers. Uh,
0: By the way, in this chapter on solar energy, uh, this case study highlights some of the things you've been talking about. The need, uh, they they take a look at the Mojave Desert and uh, some of the, the, the benefits of solar development there and some of the problems I want to read this sentence. This explicit characterization of the trade-offs between solar development and conservation in Mojave Desert gives stakeholders and decision makers data to move conservation beyond gridlock that has held up, been held up as a rational, science-based approach to avoid conflict. And they're saying you need to take a, a, a broader view. You need to study conservation effects uh, over a broader area, uh, a more holistic approach. So it fits into what you've been saying. Um, I want to go to this email. This is from Doug. Doug says, listening to the program this morning, I would like to point out that using small modular nuclear reactors like those proposed for the UAMPS Carbon-Free Power Project to be sited in Idaho National Laboratory takes 70 acres of land to produce 720,000 kilowatts 24 hours per day. According to National Renewable Energy Laboratory, it would take 5700 60 acres of solar panels to produce the same amount of energy eight hours per day. Solar and wind are important, but nuclear as well is needed to replace fossil fuel generation. That's Doug. Thanks for that, Doug. Uh, what do you think, Joseph Kiesker?
1: Oh, that's a great, great, great point. Um, uh, you know, Certainly, nuclear energy, if we were to look at the, the land use intensity and CO2 emissions, would be the big winner on both scales because it has a small footprint both in terms of land use, and it has a small CO2 emissions. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, 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 um, using those currencies, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think the problem with, with nuclear energy in the U.S. and in other countries around the world is, you know, is largely a PR problem. Um, you have a few major um, accidents that are fairly significant in terms of the damage that they cause, and and I think people are are afraid of of the technology as a whole. I think what where those accidents have happened is technology, you know, that's from decades ago. And the smaller modular nuclear um, technology is um, has is tremendous potential, and. Um, you know, I just, I, but we somehow we have, to, we have to socialize that. We have to really bring it forward, um, so that people better understand that. Because I think right now it would be a huge challenge in the U.S. To, to see it, um, to go to scale, to really bring, um, the technology forward. And so I think, again, there's a real need for a PR issue. Countries like China and India are moving ahead leaps and bounds with, with nuclear technology. And again, it's, it's, it's not the it's not the reactors from from decades ago it's, it's a much smaller um, in some cases uh, can, not in some cases it's a considerably less risky technology I
0: want to conclude with this we just have a couple of minutes left uh, okay. near the end of the book you say we are still perplexed that the best practices we have put forward uh, in the book are still not more widely embraced why do you think that is and how do you overcome that barrier
1: yeah, um, well, you know again, I would go back to the regulatory process um, that until that changes, I think we're going to be still dealing with development on a very piecemeal, piecemeal manner. Um, one of the things that we've uh, I, I, some of our case studies illustrate is when you bring these partnerships together, um, that both sides development, conservation, regulatory community, can all see the advantage of this approach, and so a big part of our work, and the, one of the big reasons that we wrote this, you know, put, pulled together all these case studies in this book, was to be able to bring that message forward, is that there's a better, better way to do it. Um. I, you know, I, when will that tipping point happen? Um. I hope soon. Uh, especially with the energy, um. In the energy side of things, I think the investments that we make in the, you know, the next few years, we're going to have to live with for decades. And so the hope is that we can transform the way we are planning for our energy future and for our, you know, the the rest of the infrastructure that we're going to be putting on the planet and, and, and make that happen in a more um, comprehensive and thoughtful way.
0: We will leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, our guest has been Joseph Kieseker. Uh, he is a lead scientist for the Nature Conservancy's Conservation Lands Team and co-author of a book, Energy Sprawl Solutions. That's out now. And uh, he'll be at University of Utah giving a Stegner Center Green Bag Series lecture. That's at 1215 today. Uh, and that'll be at the S.J. Quinney College of Law Moot Courtroom, Level 6. The event will be streamed and recorded on the S.J. Quinney College of Law YouTube channel. Joseph Kiesker, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tom. I really appreciated it.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah. On the next On Being, Pico Iyer on the art of stillness. I've got to confess to you, I think of intellectual, my prejudice is almost to
1: think of it as a bad word or a dirty word. And I think that everything important in my life has not come through my mind, but through my spirit or my being or my heart.
0: I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday afternoon at 5 here on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie and restaurant reviews. Available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.